0: Welcome to this month's edition of the the ShowCloud Threat Briefing. I'm joined again, as as per usual, with Hugh Rayner, one of our uh, senior security consultants, Um, but also this month we have an additional uh, presenter for you. So um, those who've tuned in on a regular basis will understand that you and myself have been doing this for a little while, but we are also joined by Aaron today. So Aaron, I don't know if you've got 30 seconds or so just to introduce yourself to the listeners here and what your role is here at ShowCloud.
1: Absolutely, thank you, Nick. So Hi everyone, yeah, I'm Aaron Dowswell. I'm a senior security consultant at ShoreCloud. My background was actually in penetration testing, so that's how I got into the industry nine years ago now. Worked through the typical penetration testing churn for a while, but then moved to more broad security consultancy stuff. Uh, spent six and a half years at Cisco doing some technical leadership as well. And then I found my way to ShoreCloud after that. And currently I, I work here across a wide range of technologies and assessments and uh, consulting engagements, focusing on security from risk assessments to some penetration testing and phishing engagements, training and awareness, security architecture. And I've also just taken on the responsibility of our own internal information systems management. So acting as uh, our internal CISO as well. So various different responsibilities, a bit of a jack of all trades is how I would describe myself and master of none perhaps, but we'll see. <laughs>
0: Thank you, excellent. Great to have you on on today's episode. So, uh, Agenda Today pretty much wrote itself. It's been a fairly busy last week, week and a half, something like that. Um, And we're going to go through some of the more high-profile attacks that are out there. Um, Not just to give a a commentary, you will have also seen quite a lot of hot takes on LinkedIn in the days surrounding or the days following the the events happen. We're going to try and cut through that noise a little bit, give you some insights are really things that you can take away today into to action, ultimately. So the, the things that are on the agenda, we've got the Uber hack, compromise, how you want to call it. And uh, We also had the Rockstar Games one around the GTA 6 stuff, uh, and we had the Revolut attack. There has also been a couple of others in the pipeline as well this week, because it's quite a, quite a few topics to get through. Chances are we may overrun, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of roll with it and see how we get on for time. The intention is to finish at half past, but if we are approaching 4.30 and We've still got a, a, a fair few things to cover. We're going to chip on through. and um, Obviously, feel free to stick around for, for the final bits of it if we haven't finished in time. Excellent. So we'll get into it, guys. So first of all, we've got the, the Uber attack. So this this hit the news, I'm going to say, about a week ago. So I think it was last Friday time, something like that. It's a pretty big one. So Hugh, do you want to just take us away on what the current situation is, what people know about it now? And then we'll, we'll get into a little bit of analysis around it as well.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting one, I think. So... Looks like now um, we're just sort of seeing today first real being attributed to anyone really. It was initially described as being, you know, an 18-year-old, which may still be the case, but we're starting to see people discussing it being um, Lapsus$ group that are involved here. You know, f- very familiar name to regular viewers on the on the threat briefing now. Um, obviously, we, we discussed them um, at length in in previous episodes, looking at uh, Nvidia, Microsoft, Doctor, all of those attacks. But yeah, so it looks like the the sort of basic rundown of this was not a hugely complicated attack really but with some interesting additions so it looks like uber were using multi factor authentication which is you know it good, it's good is what we'd expect but then obviously this still happened so it looks like what was going on is what we call a, an mfa fatigue attack so the threat actor here identified um, a user which is now now being reported as as being a contractor and what they do is is they they've these credentials and then with the MFA that Uber were using being you know, approval-based MFA, where you say yes, it's me logging in or no, it's not just constantly sending those MFA requests. Uh, looks like they were being sent repeatedly, you know, every every second or so for an over an hour. So, you know, with, with it being a contractor as well, unlikely that they would have had a corporate mobile device that probably going to be going to their you know to their own phone. I think the interesting thing here was uh, after an hour of trying this. The threat actor actually just messaged this individual on WhatsApp and said, Hi, I'm from the, you know, the Uber IT support team. We can see there's an issue with your MFA. The way that we need to resolve this is just you accepting one of those notifications. So I think, you know, as as, as many of us would really, you know, someone's phones pinging every every two seconds. Someone says, Oh, stop if you just tick a button. Yeah, they accepted that MFA prompt. Obviously, that then lets this threat actor in. And the story really gets gets worse for Uber from there. It, it seems that gave the threat actor initial access to uh, Uber's VPN, VPN um, environment, and from there, you know, they did some basic enumeration, as we would on, you know, a red team exercise or something like that. And it seems like they came across a PowerShell script, um, and in that script, it had um, access keys hard coded in there for Thycotic, a, a privilege access management tool. The whole point of these PAN tools is, you know, if all of the organization's credentials are in there, and they were they were admin credentials as well. So, you know, from there, they really got roughed up quite significantly with, you know, access to AWS, Google Workspaces, Slack, everything else included in that. I think quite notably also, you know, their Hacker One bug bounty platform credentials for that as well. So, not only does this threat actor now have this way in, they've suddenly also got all of the historic you know, vulnerabilities that, that Uber remediated, as well as every other current security issue that's been reported to them that they you know, might be yet to triage or, or working at in progress. So even battening down all the hatches and getting rid of them, you know, they've still then got to patch the entire backlog of security issues that have been reported to them before they can really relax. So yeah, not a very pleasant attack anyone that's uh, working there, I'd say.
0: No, and uh, I guess thoughts go out to the Uber security team at the minute. I'm sure they're working long hours, long days, and I'm sure there will be light at the end of the tunnel, obviously. So Aaron, just to bring you into this conversation around the, the Uber one, and you were, you mentioned at the top of the call you're doing some work in architecture and then things like that. This feels like a central point of failure. So the PAM solution psychotic this scenario has been you know got an access to it and therefore it's opened up avenues to everywhere else. Is is there something they could have done from a a network architecture perspective or a, a, a segregation perspective to uh, reduce the impact here. So ultimately what, what you don't want to do is have this obvious chain, which has resulting in these hugely impactful uh, outcomes.
1: Yeah. Well, this is an interesting one. We, we obviously don't have the full details of Uber's internal architecture diagrams. We, we don't know exactly how they've structured their infrastructure. But what we we can say is that gaining access to Thycotic, especially given that there appeared to be some hard coded credentials for it sitting somewhere in a script, that's a major mistake. Thycotic being a privileged access management solution, that is the keys to your estate sitting right there. That's the sort of platform that you need to make sure you've added as many controls as you can possibly consider to. So you need to have all these compensating controls to make sure that if someone's gaining access to your Pam solution, that they have re-authenticated. It shouldn't be allowed to have cash credentials from one location going to another. It shouldn't just be password-based. We need to make sure we have MFA in place for our PAM solution. There's also generally the the concept of making sure you check out credentials as opposed to just being able to log in and then access anything. So there's then that audit trail associated with it, and then you'd be closely monitoring that solution as well. So that's from the PAM side, but more generally internally on their estate, it, it does highlight at least the possibility of them making some fundamental mistakes. Hard-coded credentials in scripts is an obvious one. But more generally, the fact that those scripts can then go and do things across the estate, potentially without sensibly assigned accounts, that are service accounts that should probably be managed through the PAM solution, where you have a situation that an account gets created specifically for the use case of doing something administratively and is then disabled again after the fact, so that it can't be reused by an attacker at any point in time. So, what was that service account and those credentials that may have allowed access to Dicotic and then access to the the wider estate?
0: Brilliant, thank you. Um, is it is this? I've heard of the term just in just in time access, exactly privilege access. Is that is that essentially what we're talking about here? So, you have a set of credentials that work just for that period, and then and then they're killed off. Then
1: yeah, it's exactly that. So, a lot of PAM solutions have that as a functionality, whereby you can log in as your administrative privileged account as an end user into that platform, but then you request credentials to do something on a sensitive system and those credentials are generated in real time for you. Normally your access is then monitored as well through whether it's screen recordings or just access times and logs of commands and things like that. And then the moment you end your session with that administrative task, those credentials get discarded and are again just centrally managed in in that platform. And that would at least give that extra level of visibility and you could do additional controls on top of that, like limiting hours that certain employees, except in break glass scenarios, you need to plan for that. But for certain employees, they might not need out of hours access or they might not need to authenticate to X or Y system So just adding that granularity can limit these attacks. Okay.
0: Really? Yeah. So I guess a hugely powerful tool in generally speaking. However, the devil is is generally in the in the configuration detail, right? So make sure it's configured properly uh, and tuned to that environment um, specifically. Okay, brilliant. Okay, so that's the Uber attack. So it's I guess the the, the storyline and the the narrative is still in progress, right? So the things are still coming out now. It's still quite early on in the in the process, but it is quite a big one uh, ultimately. We'll move on to the GTA and we're, we're going to do a bit of analysis across all of these attacks towards the end of this, you know, things that we can take away and insight. So if we move on to the GTA 6 one, so this is the, the Rockstar Games. And ultimately, I think it was the over the weekend, there were there were screenshots of the new unreleased GTA 6 circulating around the internet. They then confirmed they were real, um, of an alpha release. I think it's really quite early on in the process. Um So again, Aaron, just bringing you into this one, could you give us a... An overview of what we know about this to date, how the attacks unfolded. I think the details are a little bit lighter on this one versus the Uber one, but again, worth us worth
1: covering off, I think. Yeah, absolutely. The details are a little bit lighter, but that's partly because the attack is, in theory, even simpler than the Uber attack. So just for a bit of context, Rockstar Games are the game developer. They're a pretty big titan in the gaming and entertainment industry. All their products that they release tend to get a lot of interest in them, as we've seen here. This is why it's become quite a well-known hack all of a sudden. It was plastered all over various news websites, including places like BBC News and all the typical entertainment magazines. But actually, and Rockstar themselves, actually, they're quite a a secretive company. They don't like to give out information about their upcoming titles until at the last moment. So actually, GTA 6 is something the media have invented. Rockstar Games had never announced GTA 6 as a game in development, but it's out there now in the wild. So what actually happened? What we do know is that there was, again, an MFA fatigue attack. So a Rockstar employee had repeated SMS messages or notification messages for their MFA Authenticator, eventually they clicked accept on that. The attacker then gained access to their Slack through that mechanism, so that was where the the images and the videos were leaked from. So As far as we know at the moment, it was as simple as an attacker gained access to a Rockstar employee's Slack and in that Slack, there were various videos of alpha builds of the game and screenshots. Now, there is something else to this as well, whereby the attacker has said they also have source code for GTA 5 and 6, so that's the the back-end code that, that runs these applications. They've also said that they have some documentation, storyboards, and other things from the creative design process at GTA and they, at, at Rockstar Games for GTA and other games. But they've not released that, and all they have done is go back to Rockstar Games and request money. But there's an extra element here in that we don't actually know whether the the screenshots and images and, and news reporting we have around the attacker requesting money from Rockstar Games is the real attacker, or whether it's just someone playing on the fact that Rockstar Games has had an attack and are trying to extort some money from them with actually nothing to leverage. The only thing we absolutely have is uh, is those videos and those screenshots of the game. Excellent,
0: yeah, and I think you mentioned there, and what we know they got access to Slack and there's some documents and images and videos, et cetera. My assumption is that those videos and and pictures and and whatever else are actually secured somewhere else in, in a different location. However, bringing them into a tool like Slack, okay, which has different retention policies that may not be configured, there is then a risk there, so I think there's a bit of a learning point perhaps here for for people who use tools like Slack to make sure that they are configured appropriately with data retention policies, that there isn't stuff hanging around in files that have been shared for days afterwards. And I think the default is ninety days, right? So I think there's a ninety day retention on on Slack. Hugh, I'm just going to bring you into this one. I, don't, I know it's kind of light enough on detail around what we know so far, but just want to um, ask if you've any any thoughts on you know additional com, you know, compensate controls that could have been put in place. You know, the concerns that we may have. Picked up out in the back of that that particular one that Aaron's walked through.
2: Yeah, I think what what interests me here is that we're seeing a lot of again uh, attribution to this also with Lapsus Group and the specifically the main threat actor involved in the Uber attack. And yeah, like like Aaron says, the detail light here we've not seen any any release of source code or anything like that. And you know, typically in situations like this previously, Lapsus have you know they've always Produced some sort of screenshot evidence. You know, they when they compromised Nvidia, they posted a, a, a screenshot of the file directory showing you know exactly what they had. Beyond this two minute two minute clip or whatever of, of alpha gameplay, they haven't put anything out, which you know does seem atypical for their sort of mo for when they've when they've got you know, data to ransom. In terms of the compensating controls, again looking at um, looking at MFA fatigue, you know that is. Certainly, this in this case only really applies to that approval-based MFA. And I think it raises an interesting question because personally I'd hold that approval-based MFA to be a, a higher standard of MFA than than code-based MFA, because you know, once you abstract the fact that the user's taken a code from a you know mobile device or whatever, it then becomes again something you know, just like the password. It's a it's a string that can be fished. So you know, would typically consider that to be a weaker form of MFA. Yet it would have it would have stopped these attacks. So I think you know, being considerate of you know the context behind you know what what information you're looking to secure, um, maybe some you know something like threat modeling to work out what likely attack methods are going to be and and, and what attackers are going to be after. You might find I think in some cases that methods of MFA that might be considered you know worse or weaker might be more robust against some attacks
0: yeah excellent I'm glad you mentioned threat modeling because it's uh something I, I, I'm pretty passionate about and I, I do like it quite a lot but we will talk about that quite at the end if that's all right we've got we've got a section there around the, the kind of long-term strategy that people can take away from this so maybe we can pick up around the threat modeling uh in, in that one if that's okay brilliant okay um conscious of time so let's move on and we, we've also got the Revolute one in here as well so Hugh I don't know if you're able to talk us through that um and then we'll we'll kind of start to, to pick out the pieces across the three of them.
2: Yeah, again, this is, i say, probably much smaller scale, it seems, in terms of numbers of users affected. So it's actually quite a while ago now. When looking back through it, I mean, mo- most of this information that we're, we're getting, right, seems to come from Twitter and Reddit, which just seems to be the environments that, uh, you know, these people in this you know, threat actors and, and security community are, are discussing. Um, but looking, looking back through some Reddit threads, there was a while ago some interesting updates made to the revolut applications customer support functionality with with you know some profanity put into the app there and, and users posting on reddit saying you know what's going on here and then you know a few days after that there was another thread posted saying a user being contacted uh, via a lithuanian language support team at revolut telling them that 0.19% of users had their you know their, their data compromised Nothing financial, obviously that's, you know, typically we're seeing that financial information is, you know, a completely different league in terms of the security than, you know, personal data, but yeah, that their personal data had been been compromised and they were and they were letting them know. Yeah, only only a few users really a- affected by that, it seems, um, and I think the, the wider world got to know of that when Revolut reported the attack to their local, you know, information commissioner, but yeah, I, again, an interesting one to look at there. Um, and just to consider what, what's going on, I don't think they've, they've the response to the wider Revolute user community you know, doesn't seem to have, have satisfied some of the user base. A lot of people saying, "Why? You know, why am I not being contacted about this? What? How is my data? How do I know if I'm affected?" Which I think you know, just goes to show that really response to some of these things is actually critical to public perception. Then they've
0: now said, "I think that we're going to we'll only contact people who are affected." So. That probably explains explains what that's about it's almost, it's almost flown under the radar a little bit that one uh, with everything else going off this week uh, and there's also been a couple more this morning we're not going to get into them obviously because we haven't got exactly i've <laughs> got a lot of time uh, to get through all of them okay so good so three attacks in a week week and a half space something like that let's pick out some common themes there's a couple of common themes here so hugh do you want to take us away to you know talk us through what we're thinking are, are we is the attribution the same people? Are we talking about the same threat actors, or is it some, are we talking about different ones using the same techniques?
2: Yeah, so I guess similar techniques with Uber and, and Rockstar, right? But we'd expect that now that we're seeing attribution to the same entity. Looks like signs for the Revolut attack are pointing towards a uh, malicious insider, which I guess would would sort of you know explain the updates made to that support app if a you know disgruntled developer or something just just wants to vent and then. Go out in a blaze of glory um later on, but yeah. So the first two sort of share that common thread, less so with the with the revolution. Yeah,
0: excellent. And I think there's uh there's some some questions around complexity of the attack here. So do you think it's the, these don't feel hugely complex? There's obviously a lot of elements to the the UBER one, but in terms of like actual level of complexity, we're not exactly talking about dropping zero days on externally facing infrastructure. We're, we're talking a fairly well trodden path of social engineer your way in and. And then go from there. Ultimately,
2: absolutely, and I think you know that's. I don't think we're going to see that really turning around. You know, as security vendors become more and more proficient at what they do, and the tooling becomes more you know useful and and robust, and humans remain you know dumb and easy to fool. I think you know we're only going to see that continuing with with social engineering being the primary attack vector for the majority of attacks.
0: Yeah, well, it's certainly effective. Aaron, let's talk a little bit more about threat models and, and threat actors here. So I guess one of the things that people can take away from today is that their threat model should probably include insider threat as well. Uh, is that, would that Would that be fair to say?
1: Absolutely. It should be part of, of any threat model. Your insiders are the people with the most access to your network, and they are ultimately humans. One of the interesting things with insider threat is that a lot of organizations tend to think of it as it's someone doing something malicious on purpose. But actually, you have the concept of an accidental insider threat and that's someone that can be tricked into doing something. So they might not have any malicious intent. This is just an employee who's doing their job. Perhaps they're not as aware as they should be of of some of their responsibilities for cybersecurity or security within the organization. And then they end up being socially engineered into doing something. Now that doesn't seem like that's the case in the Revolut attack here, it seems like it was a deliberate insider threat. But there is that other consideration as well of actually your internal employees, you need to put controls around them just to make sure that if they are socially engineered or if they have malicious intent, you can cover that off in terms of your, your threat model and the way you approach your layered security, defense in depth, principle of least privilege, and so on, all those elements that you you hear about. But sometimes we always think, let's just defend the perimeter. I think that's a mindset that has very much changed in the, in the last few years. And these recent attacks, in particular the Revolut one, are adding more weight to that being of importance within organisations.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned the perimeter there. I think the the traditional perimeter isn't there anymore in a lot of cases. You know, you find a lot of you know, a lot of applications, a lot of functionality that is what you might consider to be zero trusted. That you've moved the you move the perimeter into the into the authentication realm ultimately. So yeah, I think the the perimeter's changed. So just protecting the perimeter these days. Is, is going to end up in a, in a fairly bad way if you are ultimately attacked and, and attempts to be compromised. Great. So let's talk about things that people can address today. So what can we give the people listening? What are the immediate insights that they can take away now to go and implement back at their organisations? And we'll go to Hugh first for that one, if you like, and then Aaron, if you want to come in afterwards.
2: Yeah, I think um, the, the first two attacks that we're looking at around, around the MFA there you know, just reaffirm to us really that MFA alone isn't infallible. You know, it's not a, a, a one one stop fix. It doesn't it, you know, certainly doesn't replace user awareness and training. You know, you, you absolutely need your users to be on board and aware of the attacks against the MFA solution that you're running with, you know, what they might be. So you know, giving a annual training session on, hey, look, if you receive repeated requests that you're not making, you know, this is a type of attack and, you know, report this to the security team. You can't expect users to understand what various attacks might look like when they're facing them without that level of training.
0: Right, so we're talking about a, a complementing level of controls, either technical, procedural, um, policy-based controls, right? And they've got to complement each other, be work together, not be adding friction to a process for example they're going to get bypassed is that essentially what we're saying is so we can't just load an organization up on you know the latest technical gear and the silver bullet you know the latest silver bullet that's been sold on the market that kind of thing and expect it to be okay we've got to have some other things coming into that equation as well right
2: yeah absolutely
0: okay um, and Aaron have you got any immediate takeaways that people can go in and do now from from your perspective
1: yeah. Well, to be honest, I would I would echo Hughes in this case and that the the real thing for me that organizations and, and the people on this podcast should be taking away from this is actually go and have a look at what your current training and awareness looks like and have a think as to whether it includes the attack vectors against multi-factor authentication. As, as was said, we often think of multi-factor authentication as a solution to that, but actually it can be targeted as well. And we're seeing attacks on MFA type solutions increase massively over the last year or two because it's now known that most organizations are moving towards mfa as part of their authentication process so i think our our training and awareness within organizations needs to be updated to include that as a potential attack bet for that particular authentication mechanism, the MFA element, to be something that users are also somewhat suspicious of, you know, if they're receiving multiple requests, or if they receive a message pertaining to be from IT saying, please click accept, because it will make these messages go away. We just need to make sure that our users are aware of that. So as an action, go away and send an email to your employees just to let them know that MFA attacks are on the rise, and we just need to be aware of them and cautious of them.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And and, and Aaron, while you whilst, you're, whilst you're there, let's talk about a little bit about the long term actions that people can do here. So specifically, the Uber one, just because there's more information around it, are other things that could have been done. So we'd be talking about, a, you know, a different approach to architecture, architecture a network, for example. We're talking about, you know, having a good proper threat modeling program in place where we, you know, we're really testing hypotheses. Is is that something that people can do in a long term view to, to try and help mitigate these these types of attacks?
1: Yeah, there are two ways I would approach this, but. Well, You've got the policy, the process, and the procedure, ultimately, that you end up with on on one side, and you've got the technology controls and the people controls, etc. All of those are important to a business. But in terms of how I would frame this, there are two things organizations should probably look at, and that's their controls around their people. So that includes joiners, movers, leavers processes, and that principle of least privilege, and looking at your own identity and access management internally to make sure the users have the requisite access, but no more than the requisite access, and that the way they gain access is looked at appropriately. And the other element, of course, is the, the more traditional architectural-based view of this. So how do we architect our network in a sense that protects the users from themselves in it, to a degree? So that includes things like making sure that data retention and encryption is in place in, in the requisite locations, making sure that there is segmentation of various elements within the network. These are fairly fairly typical things to do, but it's, it's a good time to take stock and think, well, actually, if we were breached, how far could an attacker go either from their own perspective, you know, jumping around the network, looking for hard-coded credentials, or if they gained access to an employee and have a look at it from an employee perspective of an attacker has taken over an identity, what could they do just having that identity and potentially the MFA associated with it? Do we have other controls that could stop that along the way? That's it, yeah. Guys, um, we had a
0: a couple of questions as we do do most weeks. We are obviously short on time, but there is one that stands out as being quite relevant to this. And Hugh, I'm going to direct this one to you. Um, the question was: Are there any specific threats to cloud systems in addition to typical cyber threats? So, as we know, the Uber one resulted in AWS and GCP and, and the Google Workspace has been compromised. So, let's talk a little bit about that. So what's the immediate threat to cloud systems here that doesn't exist in a typical monolithic architecture?
2: Yeah. So, I think one of the one of the easiest ones and, and sort of most unique to the cloud environments is the you know the potential for threat actors to to jump on your your cloud environment. And, you know, typically they will look to see what regions are being used by an organization, see if there are any regions that don't have all of the logging and monitoring enabled in, uh, jump into those and then spin up an absolutely massive EC2 instance and get to work, you know, mining cryptocurrencies on it. It's a fun exercise for the reader. Go on to GitHub with some AWS access keys, post a commit, that they're uh, they're included in and just wait and see how long it takes before uh you're you're mining cryptocurrencies on your on your cloud environment the bots that are running across you know code repositories like like github it's just constantly looking for those cloud secrets to jump on and, and start mining with is uh you know it's mind blowing how how quickly uh, they they jump on that um obviously you know not 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 a huge risk with with on-prem infrastructure because your servers your server they can't Scale up and, and give you something with 412 CPU cores if it doesn't exist in in, in tin. But no, we do sometimes hear of organisations that you know, suddenly get a hundred thousand dollar bill from their cloud provider for for a week's work that they, they they weren't aware of.
0: Yeah, and generally, like I said earlier, on the perimeter is generally shifting, right? So previously, your your on-prem data centre would have been protected by a perimeter, and I guess now the cloud stuff is is less you know less protected and and is relying very much on the, the user access control, privilege access management, etc., to to lock it down, ultimately and, and prevent the, the unauthorized access.
2: Yeah, I think that that change in perimeter that you talk about and we were talking about earlier, I think is is really important that we you know remain mindful of that. The more controls that we surround one area of our environment with, maybe our crown jewels, you know, attackers are looking for the the biggest reward for the lowest effort, right? So we need to be mindful that that might. Change how an attacker is targeting, you know, what they're doing. Like with the Revolut attack, you know, we we expect, obviously, they're a payment card you know provider, right? So, but we expect a certain level of you know security and controls around that. So it seems like the attackers in this in the, in the, in the Revolut example weren't even necessarily targeting, you know, the financial side of things. The easiest way for them to you know get a return on investment is to harvest that user data. And then, you know, conduct individual phishing attacks against those users for funds. They, you know, they've made that conscious decision that actually, no, because of the controls in place, this is now the most advantageous avenue.
0: Fantastic. Guys, we're out of time. So the other questions we did have through, uh, we're going to cover one of them on a separate channel, not the threat references It's around cybersecurity position and how that should be communicated to investors. Uh, so we'll cover that in a different forum, probably not in, in this one. And there are a couple of those which we'll, we'll, we'll come back to people offline for, for the answers to those. Um, just not they're really fame with the, the topics this this month. Um, but yeah, it's really good to get questions and stuff so for future listeners and people who are tuning in next month. Uh, yep, send in any, any kind of questions you might have. And we look forward to seeing you in around a, in a month's time.